why people fall. If you look with me in verse number one of, of Proverbs chapter seven, the Bible says, my son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live in my laws, the apple of thine eye, thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thine heart. Say unto wisdom, thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. For at the window of my house I looked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones. I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner, and he went the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night, and behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn, her feet abide not in her house. Now is she without, now in the streets, and lieth and wait at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. You know, for whatever reason, those who commit great sin are usually said to have, fo- have fallen into transgression or have fallen into sin. I don't know that that's the best choice of words because a fall, when I think of a fall, a fall is usually more of an accident that really could not be avoided. I must tell you that I, as, I get, as I get older, I find myself falling more often. A tripping and just, you know, my, I, I get ahead of myself even tonight as I was coming out of my basement. I'm running up the stairs and I'm at a, I'm at a, at a pretty rapid pace and my, you know, I think my, my brain sometimes it writes checks that my body can't cash and, and I stumbled and I fell and the whole house, when a guy like me, when a guy like me starts to go out, the whole house knows and everybody comes running. Are you okay? And I'm, I'm fine. My pride is wounded, but I'm all right. I'm going to be okay tonight. But you know, when I think about a fall, I think about something that could not be avoided. Something that is an accident that we never, we never intended that it happened. It just, it just sort of did. And it, 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 there was nothing intentional about it. Whereas, whereas I would say to you that, that great sin is usually, it's more a deliberate choice that someone is making. Most of us can think of an individual who was once held in high regard or high esteem, but because of a, a choice they made, their name no longer invokes such high opinions as it once did. It may be that they fell morally, or maybe they fell due to their inability to control themselves and their emotions, maybe in the realm of their temper or in the realm of their finances, or maybe they got tied up and, uh, and caught up with, with substance abuse and they fell in that way. Uh, but understand that those things usually are not an accident. In fact, if you look closely enough, you can oftentimes see a pattern of behavior. And many times those that are close enough to them look at them and say, you know, it won't be long before this person is going to be completely given over to this sin. I don't know about you, but that really isn't a fall to me. That's not accidental. That's deliberate choices that are being made day after day, week after week, month after month, till that particular sin has completely overtaken that person. But for lack of a better term, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Why people fall. Why, why they make the choices that they do and they, and oftentimes bring such shame and disgrace upon themselves and upon their name, but more importantly, upon the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
in our, in our text tonight, we find that Solomon, who is the nation's king, and, and because he's the king, he's also the nation's highest judge, we discover that he tells a story in our text. Did this, did this story actually take place? I, I, I don't know. Is this sort of just an allegory in which Solomon is just speaking in a very general sense, or did he actually look through his casement and see these things unfold? I, I don't necessarily know. I'm, I'm inclined to, to believe that he saw it as, as it happened, as it went down, but it is also possible that this is sort of just a parable, like Jesus would tell a parable throughout his earthly ministry. And so as he is one day looking from his vantage point, perhaps from the castle or from the, from the palace, he, he sees a man who falls into sin that would actually destroy his life. And due to Solomon's position as king and judge, he, he had a responsibility to behold the lives of men and women. That's part of his job. That was part of what he had been called to do. We have a, can I say this? We have a much greater judge that is beholding our lives than Solomon who is beholding the life choices and decisions of those who were in his kingdom. This thought alone, the fact that God in heaven sits and he beholds the, the, the lives that we're living and the choices that we're making, it ought, it ought to keep us from foolishly throwing our precious lives away for some moments of sinful, fleshly pleasure. And Solomon's vantage point is useful to us because he lists some things that seem to reveal why this young man fell. In other words, as we follow the story as Solomon is telling it, uh, we can almost see it coming from miles away. We, we can see the end result. And I'm thinking to myself that Solomon, as he's telling the story, perhaps is giving us some clues maybe to watch for in our own lives that might keep us from falling or from giving in to the sin in which this young man gave in to. It is my prayer that by looking at this young man here tonight and his tragic life decisions, we will strengthen ourselves in areas of revealed or known weakness that we might not fall as he did. So I want to share with you three reasons why this young man fell, why people fall generally. Number one, I think that we discover from our text, he fell because he lacked understanding. He fell because he lacked understanding. Verse number seven makes it very clear. And beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youth a young man void of understanding. In other words, as Solomon is watching this and he's beholding all of this, I almost get the idea that Solomon wants to shout as loud as possible, hey, hey, listen, buddy, I, I know you don't get it yet. I understand that you haven't maybe lived long enough or you don't have as much understanding as you, as you ought to have, but understand this, you're way too close to danger. You better get away from there. I think to myself of children who perhaps sometimes find themselves in precarious places or in dangerous places, but they, they don't have the understanding to realize that it's a dangerous thing. They haven't lived long enough to fear certain things, and I almost get the idea that this is the case where this young man finds himself. The word simple in verse number seven, it literally means silly or foolish. Albert Barnes said of this young man that he was open to all impressions of evil. He said this about him, that he was empty-hearted and empty-headed. I hope that's not you tonight. 
I hope you're not empty-hearted and empty-headed. I hope that you're not silly or foolish and as you, as you live in this world and, and, and perhaps are tempted to dabble in sin. We see some reasons as to why he might have been simple or lacking in understanding in our text. Number one, I would say this, that youth, youth can sometimes lead to a lack of understanding. Youth can sometimes lead to a lack of understanding. Do you see that twice in in this seventh verse, Solomon reveals that this man was young or that he was a youth. You know, there are times when people lack the understanding they need due to the fact that they're just just young. Haven't lived long enough to understand, hey, that, that type of person or that type of activity is a dangerous thing for you to be involved in. So youth sometimes can lead to a lack of understanding. And I would just then ask this question, well then is it just a matter of fate? In other words, is it, is it just one of those things where, you know, well, you're, you're just too young and so you're just going to have to fall if the temptation comes, you have no choice in the matter? Is it just a matter of fate? Do we, do we have to just hope that no major temptation comes our way while we are in our youth or while our children or grandchildren are in their youth? Because at this age and at this stage, we'll be completely unable to avoid falling due to our youth? Is that, is that the answer? Is the answer just, well, just hope and pray. Nothing, nothing major comes along. Hope and pray you never find yourself in a situation like this. I don't think that's the answer at all. I believe, I believe God, God establishes some safeguards. God establishes some fences in the lives of young people who, who are lacking in understanding. And God understands that they're lacking understanding. Therefore, God gives these, these fences or these safeguards in their lives to keep them from falling. I'm talking about things like mentors or guides to youth to help and assist them in their journey to understanding. I'm thinking to myself that young people enjoy the guide of God's word to aid and assist them and keep them from falling. In other words, if you're sitting here saying, well, I'm just a young person, I guess, I guess it's just, you know, it's just fate. I better hope that I don't find myself. No, 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 that, that's not the answer. The answer is this, God's given you this book. This book has been written uh, for you to help you uh, to keep yourself from falling. And you may, not, you may not have it all figured out yet, and you may still be just a young person. But listen, don't, don't lose sight of this. If you'll get into this book, and if you'll read this book, and study this book, and meditate upon this book, and obey this book, I believe, I believe, though you may not have everything in life figured out yet, you can keep yourself from falling. The Word of God. The Bible says in Psalm 119 and verse number 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? That's a question. The question is, is literally like this. How's a young man going to clean his life up? How's he going to stay on a right and a pure path? Well, the answer is given in that verse. And here it is, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse number 12, Paul wrote, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. 2 Timothy 2, 22, the same apostle Paul wrote to the same Timothy as he did in 1 Timothy 4, 12, and he said, Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So I believe, I believe that we have the word of God as young people, the young people in this room, uh, the children in this room, you have the word of God as a guide, as a mentor to aid and assist you in the, in the fact that you're still a youth and maybe in some respects lacking some in your understanding. 
But then I would also say that God has also given youth parents. Parents are given to keep young people accountable. Parents. You have godly parents in this room who have established some rules and some laws and some commandments in your home. Some of those things you may not fully understand. They may not always make sense to you. I can think of times in which my parents established some rules and some laws in our home in which I didn't fully get it at that point in time. But I've lived long enough, I've lived long enough to realize, oh, I get it now. Understand what my parents were doing. Understand why they were requiring that I be in by a certain point in time. Understood why they insisted that I, uh, that, that I not single date as a young man in my youth. Understand uh, why, they, why they didn't allow us to watch those television programs and to watch those types of movies and why uh, they didn't permit us to listen to certain types of music. And, and, and I, I, I get it now. It makes sense to me now. I didn't get it then. Why? Because I was a youth. Was lacking in my understanding. I, I, thought, I thought everything was innocent and wholesome. I thought everything was to be enjoyed. And my parents, my parents understood, hold on a minute, we're raising some boys here in a very wicked world, and they can't, they can't just be exposed to every little thing. We must be very careful as we raise these young men. It's why God also provides other godly influences. I'm talking about maybe characters in Scripture and the Word of God. I'm I'm talking about extended family who can speak into the life of children. I'm talking uh, about friends. and I'm talking about godly friends. I'm talking about pastors and teachers and counselors who God puts into a life, into a young life, to aid them and to assist them because they're still lacking in understanding. The Bible says in Hebrews 13 and verse number 17, Obey them that have the rule over you. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. I've been around here long enough to spend some time with some of you that have been around here even longer than I have. And it's interesting to me. I talk to some of the older folks around here. And when, a, and when a name is mentioned of someone who's, who's maybe not even around here anymore, they've moved on, perhaps they're living somewhere else, maybe they have a career in another state and they've got a family and, and, uh, and they're living a life that, is, uh, that really is in line with the way that they were raised in this place. And, I, and I'll, I'll mention that name. Hey, have you heard from so-and-so? And, and, and oftentimes when I'll, ask that, when I'll ask that question, a big smile will creep on some of, some of your faces. As you think about that individual and the memories that you had with them, the idea that God placed you in their life or placed them in your life as, as, as a counselor, as a guide, as a, an authority figure in their life, and, uh, and, and, and you watched out for their soul, and they were, uh, they, were, uh, they were submissive to your leadership and to your authority in their life and to the other authority figures that God placed, maybe their parents and certainly word of God and, and perhaps the, uh, the pastor of the, of the church at that particular time. And now, and now as they carry on with their life, there's great joy that comes to your heart when you think about them. But you know the reverse is also true. There are names that are mentioned. And when they're mentioned, there's, there's sadness and sorrow. Maybe even, maybe even a tear that comes to your eyes. You think about the fact that, and they were here and they had so much potential. 
And maybe just a, maybe just a little decision here or a, a little choice over here and they could have gone a completely different direction. And as a counselor, as a guy that's been put into their life, watching out for their soul, as you give an account, you don't give an account with joy, but you give an account with grief. Your heart is broken because the young person just refused to acknowledge and to submit themselves the authority that was over them. So, so what I'm saying is that, that young people who lack understanding, they're not, they're not just, just a, a, subjected to fate. No, no, God, God gives them some safeguards and some things he places in their life. Therefore, if you're here tonight and you're a young person, you may, may admit, you may not admit that perhaps you say, yeah, I, I recognize I am lacking some in understanding. Listen, you don't have to fall because God's given you his word. Many of you, God's given godly parents. And you have, some of you have godly Sunday school teachers and godly Christian school teachers and you have some godly friends and, and, and you have a pastor who is, preaches God's word faithfully and, and, uh, and stands week after week to proclaim what the Bible has to say and, and God's given you those things. Therefore, you don't have to fall. So this is why young people, listen, this is why young people need a controlled environment. It's why parents may choose to enroll their children in a Christian school or maybe a homeschool environment. It may be why your parents require you, young person, to attend a Christian college. And and it's why they establish clear rules that that are enforced. They're acknowledging, they're acknowledging that as a youth, there is much that you don't quite understand and can I say this, that they're trying to protect you while you learn and while you grow in your... It's not always going to be this way. The day is coming in which a lot of these safeguards will be removed. There will no longer be parents looking over your shoulder all the time. You're outside of the Christian school, no longer answerable to that handbook and to that code of conduct. Those things can go away at a certain point in time because you should have reached a point of understanding where you can make wise decisions and wise choices. But at this stage in your life, well, thank God for the fact that somebody cares enough about you in your youth to build some walls and some fences to keep you from falling. If you're a youth, you, listen, you do not have an excuse to sin simply due to your age. But you should know you are, you are in a more vulnerable position due to your lack of life experience. So it may be, I have no doubt that he fell He lacked understanding because he was a youth. But notice, I think that a case can be made that not only youth can lead to a lack of understanding, but so can complacency. Number two, complacency can lead to a lack of understanding. In verses one to five, Solomon is urging his son, keep my words, lay up my commandments. Verse two, keep my commandments and live and my law as the apple of thine eye, bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thine heart. Say unto wisdom, thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. Psalm 119, verse number 11 says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. You know, over and over again, Solomon has urged his son to listen and to heed his words and his warnings. And can I say that, listen, there is work to be done. There is work to be done if you're going to live this way. In the preceding verses, Solomon tells his son to keep, lay up, bind, and write his commandments. 
I believe so many people fall because they simply, listen, they simply refuse to put in the work that is necessary to avoid falling. They're just lazy, complacent. So they don't pay attention to the, the dangers that are out there. They don't think about it. They don't think about the fact that if I'm going to keep from falling, I've got I've to make this book, this Bible, a preeminent place in my life and in my heart. I've got to make the church house a preeminent place. I've got to surround myself with godly influences. I, I've got I, to set up some safeguards in my life to keep me from falling. And too many people, too many people fall because they just simply get complacent. They just simply get lazy. If you will not grow complacent towards God's word, you can stand throughout your life. In order to stand, you're going to have to keep God's word. You're going to have to lay up God's word. You're going to have to bind it upon your fingers, and you're going to have to write it upon the table of your heart. I believe, I believe listen, you ought to be, I ought to be, we ought to be memorizing God's word, reading God's word, meditating on God's word, obeying God's word, listening to God's word being preached. I think we ought to make it a huge, huge part of our life. If we don't do that, if we allow complacency and laziness to set in, it's very, very possible that living in a complacent way will lead to falling. Notice, secondly, not only did he fall because he lacked understanding, but number two, he fell because he was not careful. He fell because he was not careful. Look in verses 8 to 10. The Bible says there, passing through the street near her corner, and he went the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. I believe there's three things in each one of, the, each one of these verses. One thing that is described is an area in which this young man was not careful. Number one, I would say this. He was not careful about where he walked. He was not careful about where he walked. The Bible says in verse number eight that he passed through the street near her corner and he went the way to her house. You know, there are just some places that Christians should avoid. There are some places that a Christian should avoid. It may not necessarily be a sin. I don't think we could say that it was a sin for this young man to walk here. There's no, there's no law that necessarily, there's no Bible verse that says don't, don't walk on that street corner. It may not necessarily have been a, been a sin, but, but, but listen, wisdom and discernment should keep you and it should keep me from certain places. I, I, I got to thinking about certain places that Christians ought to avoid, especially if they, if they struggle in certain areas. I, I, think, I think if you struggle with gambling, you ought to avoid casinos. Now, I think everybody ought to avoid casinos, but especially if you, and some of you, some of you, I've seen you, you get in those arcades. That claw game becomes too much, you know. And you just keep feeding that machine, just another dollar, just another, I'm gonna win that stuffed animal, I'm gonna win that teddy bear. If that's you, you ought to stay out of the casino, all right? Now all of us ought to stay out of it, but you, you get the idea. The gamblers ought to stay away from casinos. Now, this may sound humorous, but I would say gluttons should avoid buffets. <laughs> I mean, honestly. I mean, I, I mean, you know, again, we can chuckle a little bit. But if you struggle physically and you can't, you can't say no, then, then you ought to go to a place where you can order something simple, one thing off the menu, eat it, and walk away. 
And again, I, I realize we could, we could chuckle a little bit. I'm sure all of us, in some respects, maybe have some work to do in, in, in one of these areas. But I would just say that if that's a, that, that's a struggle for you, you ought to stay out of those types of places. Alcoholics should avoid bars and should avoid even grocery store aisles that sell alcohol. I mean, you know, if that's, a, if that's a struggle for you, then you ought to stay away from places in which that's going to be in, in your view, that's going to be in front of you. Because, because if, you've, if you've already just, you know, proven a pattern of behavior that says, I struggle when I get around this stuff, why would you put yourself anywhere near it? Now, I know there, there's some people, there's some people who will not eat in a restaurant that serves alcohol. And I... I don't necessarily have that same stand, but I'm certainly not going to criticize somebody who does. How in the world am I supposed to know what might have happened in their past or why they've established, why they've erected that, that wall or that fence? If that's what they want to do, then so be it. Now, we're getting to a point where about the only restaurant you can eat in is McDonald's. Even Cracker Barrel's now selling alcohol. I don't know if you know that or not. These places that have long been places in which they don't sell that kind of stuff, they're, 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 they're bowing to the God of this world, and it's all about making more money, I suppose. But I'm just simply saying, listen, if you struggle in that area, that's probably a place that you ought to stay away from. I'd say porn addicts should avoid unfiltered access to the Internet. In other words, if you, if you realize that's a struggle, that's a, a battle for me, sitting in front of a computer or on my smartphone or on a tablet somewhere, and I just don't trust myself. I'm afraid. There's a pattern of behavior in which I I oftentimes find myself looking at sites and looking at things I have no business looking at. Well, then I would just say this. You're a fool. You're a fool to put that stuff in front of you without any filter whatsoever. I'm just simply saying that that if you're not careful about where you walk, you're going to fall. You're going to fall. In Hebrews 12, in Hebrews 12, we are told about the sin that doth so easily beset us. Verse number one. And here's what I want to say about that. You should know what your besetting sin is. Because everybody has one according to that text. Everybody has a sin that does so easily beset them. And the thing you struggle with may be different than the thing that I struggle with. And the thing I struggle with may be different than what somebody else struggles with. But you ought to know what it is. You don't understand that this is a stronghold in my life. This is a struggle for me. Therefore, therefore, I'm going to set up some parameters. I'm going to be awful careful around this particular sin. I'm not going to, just be careful where I walk. It may not be, listen, it may not be a sin to walk into a restaurant that serves alcohol. It may not be a sin. But if you struggle in that area, you better be careful. You better be real careful. It's not a sin to be online. There's a lot of sinful things that you can get to get get into online. It's not a sin to be online, but if you struggle, if you struggle with where where you go and the sites that you visit, and you're not careful about it, then you're very very foolish, and you're very very simple, and you're silly. You're asking yourself for trouble. You ought to know. You ought to know your besetting sin, and you should run far, far, far away from the places where this sin is most easily accessible. This young man, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a sin for him to be on this corner. Because there's no, there's, no, there's no rule or law that says, don't go to this street corner. But you better be careful where you're walking. Number two, notice not only was he not careful about where he walked, but he also was not careful about when he walked. Would you look with me in verse number nine? Notice when he finds himself on this corner. In the twilight, in the evening, 
in the black and dark night. Solomon said that this took place at a certain time of night. It was twilight, it was evening, it was black and it was dark. These descriptors are significant, aren't they? Here's why they're significant, because man has always, always sought to hide or to conceal his sinful acts. Always. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, according to verse number eight of Genesis chapter number three, the Bible says that they hid themselves from God. They were hiding from him. They didn't want, they didn't want him to see them. When Achan took of the accursed thing, according to Joshua 7, Verses 20 and 21, when he took of the accursed thing, you know what he did with it? He took it back to his tent. Presumably, maybe he hid it under his robe or, or he put it in some type of a, a, a bag or some, some type of a concealer. And when he got to his tent, you know what he did? The Bible says that he dug a hole in the ground and he buried those things. Why? Because, because what he had done was wrong. and Because he didn't want anyone to know what he had done. Therefore, therefore, he dug a hole, and he, and, he, and he hid those things. Now think about this for just a moment. Achan would lose his life, and his whole family would lose his life for a Babylonian garment, listen, that he would never put on. And for some, some pieces of silver that he would never spend. He lost his life for some things that he would never even have an opportunity to enjoy. I'm just trying to make the point that that what, what we do in our sinful acts, we try, to, we try to cover these things. We try to conceal or hide them. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he worked diligently to cover his tracks, didn't he? You read 2 Samuel 11, beginning in verse number 5, all the way down through verse number 27, and you will find the various steps that David took in order to try to cover his sin. Try to conceal it, try to hide it so no one would see it, so no one would know. Jesus said this, he said, and this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Can I just, can I just pause here for just a moment and, and speak once again to the young people and say, listen, there's a reason why curfews exist. There's a reason why. Very little, very little of a wholesome nature happens past a certain time of night. Very little. Now, I realize anything could happen at any time. I get all of that. But there's, there's a reason why your parents more than likely are telling you, better be home by 10. And if, they're really, if they're really generous, you better be home by 11. To be honest with you, there, there's just not a whole lot, especially for a teenager, especially for a young man or a young woman, not a whole lot of good things that are happening. Now, listen, if you're at work, you get off late and, and, and you rush right home, that's one thing. But I'm talking about just to be out, just doing whatever. There's a reason why your parents established some of those types of rules. You would be wise to consider not only where you walk, but listen, when you walk there. You know as well as I do, there's some, there's some neighborhoods, some places that you can go during the daytime and, 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 and you feel you know, pretty safe and, and pretty secure being there. And then there's places, those same places that you can go when the sun goes down and when it's dark and black in which there's a different vibe there altogether. So not only should we be careful where we walk, but we should also be careful when we walk. But notice thirdly, we should be careful with whom we walk. Look at verse number 10. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. Now notice there are several things that stand out from Solomon's description that we should note and that should have led this boy to be alarmed. 
Number one, the Bible tells us that there met him a woman. A woman. Not a young woman. Not a girl. A woman. He was a young man. He was a youth. No such designation is given to her. She is an older, and from what we can discern, based on what Solomon writes and what she even says a little bit later in this passage, she is a married woman. Young men, listen, young men should seek, young people should seek closest relationships with other young people. In addition, young men should be careful about their behavior when around those who are of the opposite gender. Should have been a bunch of red flags that were going off, that were waving in this man's mind as he's walking in this place at the time of night in which he's walking. And when he's approached by this, this woman, this married woman, there should have been some things that said, hold on a minute, this is trouble, this is trouble. Notice not only do we discover that she was a woman, but notice the Bible says that she is a woman with the attire of an harlot. Solomon does not call this woman a harlot, but she's dressed like one. Baptist preachers have long been criticized because we preach and emphasize modesty. But can I tell you, this is a biblical principle. It's not a Baptist principle. Modesty is a Bible principle. It doesn't matter what denomination you are. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter, and none of those things matter. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's an element in which God demands modesty of his people, men and women alike. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. For the sake of time, we don't turn there. We don't even read it to you. But 1 Peter 3, 1 to 5 talks about the same thing. Can I say, I believe that modesty, modesty is a safeguard for men and women alike. I think we can all use wisdom and discernment to determine what is modest and what is appropriate. I'm not here to, I'm not here to get into the weeds tonight on all that stuff. Because your, some of you, your, your version of what is modest is maybe a little bit different than what someone's, someone else's version of modest is. And we're not, we're not here to discuss that. We're not here to, to, get, to get into all of that. Obviously, as a church, we, 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 as we gather and we do certain things um, and, and we have you know, certain activities and events, we might ask that, hey, for this event, we're going to ask that you wear this and that you be uh, considered of this. Again, I'm not here to get into specifics on these things, but I want to say this, that parents, listen, God has given you a job to do, and that is this, to help your children be modest, help your daughters be modest, and you ought to, you ought to teach them why that's so important. Because likely, as a young person in their youth, they may not have complete developed understanding in those ways. And so as a, as a dad or as a mom, you may sit them down and say, listen, this is why, this is why we do what we do. This is why we ask that you dress the way that you, that, that you dress. And, and this is what, this, these, are the, these are the standards that we have as a family. Now, there may be another family in the church that does things a little bit differently. So be it. That's, that's between, between them and the Lord. But this is what we're going to do. This is the standard that we have. We see that this young woman, this woman, I should say, this woman was a problem because she was dressed a certain way that wasn't appropriate. But notice, not only was she a woman with the attire of a harlot, but she had evil intentions. It says at the end of verse number 10, and she was subtle of heart. She was loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. You know, there are certain people who have evil intentions. This young man was simple, but listen, this woman was not. 
She was not. She knew what she was doing, and she intended, listen, she had every intention to do wicked and evil things this night. Can I say that typically this type of person is immediately known and identified. In other words, when you get around someone who has evil intentions, you almost, you almost know it right away. I mean, it's easily discerned and identified. It, it reveals itself in the way they talk. In this case, it revealed itself in the way that she dressed. Uh, and and, and it's, just, it's just obvious. This person is no good. If I spend enough time around this person, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find myself in some serious trouble because this person is subtle of heart. They have evil intentions. I say that when you suspect a, a, an acquaintance, a friend has evil intentions, you better run. Proverbs thirteen twenty says this, he that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Number three, and we'll finish here, he fell because he was deceived. He fell because he was deceived. In verses 13 to 21, I've identified, I believe I've identified five lies that this woman tells, tells this, this man. And I, I, I believe that these, these, these lies are still prevalent in our day and age. And if you'll believe these lies, if you'll, if you'll allow these things to deceive you, you will fall too. And I want to point them out to you. First of all, the Bible says that she told him these lies with an impudent face. Now, likely you're here tonight and you, you, may not be, you may not know what does the word impudent mean. It's not a word that we use a lot. And so let me, let me try to help you understand it. The word impudent, it means hard or strong. Now, here's why these lies are so dangerous. These lies are so dangerous because people will tell them to you and they will actually believe them. So that as they, as they tell, you know, a lot of times, you know, when, you're, when your kids are, are little and they're lying, you know it right away. It's all over their face. But as they get older, that face gets a little bit more impudent, doesn't it? you got to dig a little deeper to know whether they're lying because now they're telling these lies with a strong face. In other words, they've figured out how to make the face match up with the lie. That's a, it's an acquired skill, and, and our sin nature leads us down that path. So this woman tells him these lies, and she says them in such a way to get him to believe that what she's saying is true. An impudent face. What I'm saying is, again, you, you're going to be told some lies by people who, who in their face and the way that they communicate these lies, you will not be easily able to discern whether it's a lie or not. But here they are. Number one, this is classic. This is classic. Here's lie number one. She told him this. She said, she said I am right with God. That's what she says. You don't believe me? Look, at, look in verse number 14. She catches him, she kisses him, and with this strong face, she starts to lie. And look what she says. She says, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Do you know what she's doing? She's convincing him that she's right with God. She says, says, listen, listen, I know know what, what I'm proposing doesn't look very good, but I just want you to know, I was at the temple earlier today. I went. And I even had some money with me, and I dropped that money in the collection. And I have paid my vows, and I'm as right with God as I can possibly be. I know it looks like what I'm proposing and what I'm presenting to you isn't good, but believe me, I've never been more right with God than I am right now. And you're looking at me like, are you kidding me? And I'm I'm just simply saying, I have sat in my office And I have talked to people who are involved in some of the most heinous, wicked sins. And they look at me and they try to convince me I've never, I've never been closer to God than I am right now. That's a lie. 
I, listen, I don't care how you feel. This book will always trump your feelings. And if this book says it's wrong, I don't care how it makes you feel, and I don't care how wonderful everything is, if this book identifies your behavior as sinful and wicked, I don't care how you feel, and neither does God. So lie number one is I'm right with God. I'm spiritual. Oh, I've, I've spent more time. I had people tell me, I've spent more time in the Bible in the last three weeks since I've been involved in this, than I have in a long time. And I'm thinking to myself, you're reading the wrong Bible. Because my Bible says what you're doing is wrong and it's wicked. So she tells him, lie number one, I am right with God. I, again, I am just continually amazed at how many people are living in open sin and wickedness, but they're convinced that they're right with God. Either, either those people don't know God's word, or they have sinned to the point of a seared conscience. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And someone who carries on in this way and tries to tell you I'm as spiritual as I've ever been, that person is someone whose conscience has been seared with a hot iron. That's someone who is, who, who is speaking lies and hypocrisy, and you ought to know it. I don't care what their face looks like, and I don't care how confident they are when they say it. If, if how they're living contradicts this book, then they're not right with God. It's impossible. Number two. Lie number two. Here it is. She says, I've been waiting for you. Lie number two, I'm right with God, lie number one. Lie number two, I've been waiting for you. Look in verses 15, 16, and 17. Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thine face, and I have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of, of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. She deceived this young man by making him think that he was the most important and special person around. If she really thought of him this way, she would not be preparing to destroy his life the way that she is. I mean, if he really was that important and that special, she would not be proposing what she's proposing. The reality, the, the reality is that, that, that she's not been waiting for him. She's just been waiting for anyone who's silly enough to do what she's proposing. That he is nothing but a pawn to her. He is a means to satisfy her fleshly lust. This isn't about him. She hasn't been looking and waiting for him specifically so much as she's been looking and waiting for anyone who will be foolish enough to believe her lies and to give in to her temptations. But he believed it. He believed that, oh, I'm this special one. She's been waiting for weeks till I would walk by at just the right time. Oh, this is just fate. God did all of this. No, no, no. Nothing could be further from the truth. And he believed the lie. I've been waiting for you. This is fate. Oh, God, God must have meant that we would cross paths at this point in time. This is, I mean, it was, it was written in the stars very clearly that this is what God has for us. And, and he believed it. He believed it. Number three, he believed this lie. Here it is, I love you. It's a lie. She don't love him. Look at verse 18. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. 
See, this woman equates physical pleasure with love. There, listen, I want you to know something. There is no love in this scenario whatsoever. There's zero love. He doesn't love her, and she doesn't love him. Not for a single second. She promises him a lifetime commitment of love, but she has no intention of fulfilling or keeping this promise. Can I say this? Listen, love is not an act, and it is not a feeling. Love is a choice. It is a choice to put the needs of someone else ahead of your own. And what she is speaking of, listen, what she is speaking of is not love, it's lust. And remember, listen, love is just a word unless it's followed up with action that reveals the one saying it actually means what he or she is saying. So he believed the lie, I love you. There's a fourth lie he believed. Here it is, verses 19 and 20. Here's the, th- the fourth lie. No one will ever know. Look in verse number 19. For the good man is not at home. That's code for husband. He has gone a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. She tells him, she says, hey, listen, we can get away with this. You can get away with this. Because the man of the house is gone. He's gone on a long journey. And I know, I know that he will not be home until a specific day that has been appointed between us. And she convinces him that he can commit this sin of adultery and fornication in complete and total anonymity. No one will ever know. I say the devil will always try to convince you that you can do it and be, and be the only person to ever get away with it in which no one ever knew. Now, you, you got to start thinking about the law of averages here, right? In other words, if no one else has ever gotten away with it, what makes you think you're going to be the first? I mean, listen, folks, we, we've, got, we've got perhaps 6,000 years of human history. <laughs> and you're, you mean to tell me that in 6,000 years, nobody ever got away with it, but you're going to get away with it. David didn't get away with it. Some of the other great Bible characters, they didn't get away with it. What makes you think you're going to be, di- be any different? Still says in the Bible, doesn't it? Be sure your sins will find you out. And yet, and yet, we dive headlong into sin and wickedness, believing the lie no one will ever know. And I just want you to know if you believe that, you're really silly. You're really foolish. You're really simple. Because nothing could be further from the truth. Final, final lie that he believes is this it's worth it. It's worth it. Verses 21 to 27, with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. You know what she's saying? She's saying, listen, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. She pressures him over and over and over again. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter. That's not a good thing. Or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her past, for she hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. I don't think you can find much more descriptive language used in all of the Bible than what Solomon says about the young man, about the youth, about the person who sins in this way. What, what, gets, him, what gets him to finally give in? He's believed all of these lies, and he finally gets to the point where he convinces himself, listen, I know, I know it's a train wreck waiting to happen. I know it's a mess. I know it could potentially destroy my life, but these few moments of pleasure will ultimately be worth it. 
And don't, don't miss this, for the rest of his life. Because listen, listen, her, her, her chamber leads to hell and it leads to death. And for the rest of his life, he sits back and he cries out, why? Why? What a fool I have been. What a fool I have been to believe the lie that it will be worth it. How can you keep from falling? You must grow in your understanding. Know God's word and allow it to influence your decisions. Surround yourself. Surround yourself with godly people to help you. Be careful where you walk, when you walk there, and with whom you walk. And then number three, don't believe the lies of the enemy. Here they are. The enemy will tell you with a straight face and with all the confidence in the world, I'm right with God. They'll tell you, I've been waiting for you. Oh, you're special. They'll tell you, I really do love you. They'll tell you, no one will ever know. And they'll tell you, in the end, it'll be worth it. And they'll say all of these things with a straight face, an impudent face, the Bible says. A face that is so confident that you're tempted to actually believe what it is that they're saying. Maybe they've told these lies so many times, they actually believe them. But don't you fall for it. Don't you fall for it. If you and I will stay strong in the areas that we've identified in this particular text, I believe, I believe, and my prayer is that I never get a phone call. That I never get a phone call from a wife who's brokenhearted. My husband. My prayer is I never get a phone call from parents who tell me, you know, my teenage son was out last night and he did this or he did that. I can't imagine, I can't imagine a heavier thing for a pastor to have to deal with and to try to put back together than someone who deliberately, who deliberately sins in these ways. And there's no excuse for it because God in his word has given us the steps that are necessary to keep us from falling. Our heads are